when I was youth pastor here at Calvary in the mid-2000s, at the end of youth group each Sunday afternoon, I always seemed to end up with a lot of youth who needed rides home. And I was always happy to provide them, but my car was not always large enough. And uh, I had, at the time, a, a 1986 Voyage, and uh, sometimes, I probably shouldn't be saying this, especially not on live stream, or whatever, but there were times where, you know, we could fit eight, nine people into that Voyage. Uh, they were, you know, youth, teenagers, to give rides home. Well, it so happened that there was one uh, young girl who would get rides home with me from time to time, and she must have related to her parents what it was like to be squished into this car, because one day her dad came to me and said, we have a minivan that we want to give to you. Um, we know about, you know, transporting kids around the city after youth group on Sundays, so we want to give you this van. Now, this was a 1990 Ford Aerostar minivan, and uh, some of you are familiar with it. Most of you are not, and that kind of goes to my point. So for two years, this particular model had been imported to Brazil, but it had never been produced here. So the rarity of this vehicle led to both challenges and blessings. Blessings because it was significantly larger. We could fit even more people into it. We could carry even more stuff. That was a blessing. Another blessing is that one day uh, the, the van was parked on the street and someone contacted me and said, is that red van on the street yours? And I said, well, yes, it is. And they said, look, I'm a producer for a movie that's set in the early 1990s and the late 80s. And can we rent your van? All, it's just going to be parked on the set. It's just going to be parked there, but we're trying to make it look like it's the early 90s. They paid me a really nice sum of money to come pick up my van. They didn't even drive it. They put it on a tow truck, took it to where they were going to, and brought it back to me three days later. Uh, another blessing. There were also some challenges related to this. When it was time to transfer the van into my name, the van had no engine number. It just didn't exist. So you can imagine the joy it was to figure out how to legally have an engine number assigned and then actually engraved on the engine block. It was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Um, I love Detran. Um, but this minivan stood out because it was unique. As far as I can recall, I have not seen another one of that same model here in Brazil. Now it comes time for our smooth transition into Acts. As we accompany Paul, Silas, and Luke on their missionary journey, they are going to arrive today at the first European city, the city of Philippi. Philippi was the seat of Roman government for the region of Macedonia, and as the gospel is taken into this new region for the first time, Luke is going to remind us through his writing of the utter uniqueness of the gospel, of how different the gospel is from any other system of belief, from any other religion or any other philosophy of life. The gospel is infinitely better than and utterly unlike any other religion. So as we follow these early missionaries, Paul, Silas, Luke, and their other companions through the streets of Philippi, I want us to note five distinctives of the gospel, five ways that the gospel is utterly unique. 
I'll be picking up the reading here from Luke, I'm sorry, from Acts 16, beginning with verse 11, and we'll read through the end of chapter 16. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. Now remember, the pronoun being used now is in the first person, we, because Luke has joined Silas and Paul on their journey. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman, named, was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. 
When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison, and now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. The first uniqueness of the gospel is its power. The unique power of the gospel. The gospel is infused with power because the gospel is truth. And the focus of this power to which Luke points us in Philippi is specifically the power of the gospel to destroy barriers between people. And it's power to unite them into one body, the church. In Philippi, the gospel breaks down the barriers of gender, of the demonic, and of the oppressor. First of all, we see the, the gospel breaking down the barrier between male and female, men and women. When Paul and his companions set out to find a place of prayer by the river, their intent was to find a group of Jewish men, a substitute for the local synagogue. But what they encounter instead is a group of Gentile women. Now, I know that today it doesn't seem particularly surprising to us that they would take this opportunity to talk to the women about Jesus, but for the times and the culture, this was extraordinary. Women were not taught. They were generally uneducated because the male-dominated society did not think it worth the effort to educate them. Now, of course, Lydia here we see is already an exception. She is a businesswoman, an apparently successful businesswoman, a dealer in purple cloth, which was a luxury. But nonetheless, we see the power of the gospel destroying the barrier between the genders. Paul and Silas and the companions, they speak to the women. They come to the river. Who do we find? It's a group of women. Great. This is who God has provided for us to share with. And so they share the gospel. And at least one of these women believes, as we've just read. And she, Lydia, is welcomed into the church with equal value as an equal member unified with barriers destroyed between the men and the women. The second barrier that we see destroyed is the barrier of the demonic. Evil is a barrier between people, just as it is a barrier between people and God. And as Paul is used by God and used by the Holy Spirit to set this girl free, we see the supreme power of the truth, the power of the gospel. This girl follows Paul and Silas around the city for days. It says for many days. And she's shouting out behind them, these men are servants of the Most High God. They're here to show you the way for salvation. And Paul gets incredibly irritated. Remember, Paul is human. 
He gets incredibly irritated, incredibly annoyed. So after a number of days, he just can't take it anymore. And I picture him whirling around and saying, come out of her in the name of Jesus. And immediately the slave, woman, slave girl, who has literally been trafficked, she is being trafficked. That's, what, that's the definition of trafficking, right? She is a slave and she is being used by those who, quote, own her to make money. And that simple phrase from Paul, in the name and authority of Jesus, sets her free. One question that has often been asked about this passage is, if what the slave girl, the the demon-possessed girl, was saying was true, why did Paul feel the necessity to cast out the demon? Well, it has a lot to do with the source. When truth comes from a deceitful source... It is often not believed or accepted. Additionally, we do know that this girl had some power by this evil spirit to foretell the future. She had been successful in this and had made a lot of money for her handlers, for her owners. And so I believe to Paul and Silas, it was very important that the power of Christ not be confused with the power of the demonic. So as long as this demon-possessed girl was the one proclaiming phrases that were true, there could eventually be a confusion about the source of this power. So once and for all, the power of Christ is shown to be supreme. The demon who has possessed this girl for a long time, who has made a lot of money for her owners, with one phrase in the name of Jesus, is completely set free. And that demonic barrier is destroyed. Thirdly, and in some ways, perhaps, this is, is very important, perhaps the, not the most important, but perhaps the one that comes to our attention most readily today, is that the power of the gospel destroys the barrier between the oppressor and the oppressed, if you want to put it that way. Paul and Silas are imprisoned. Now, we've just read about the miraculous nature of their release, but remember that not only were they set free, but in the process of, process of their freedom, the very man who had the responsibility to guard them in prison, the one who had placed them in the inner cell, the one who had put their feet into the stocks, the one who was responsible for ensuring that they would not escape, that person, that man, was invited to and transformed by the gospel. And even he was welcomed into the church along with those he had previously oppressed. Many of you are familiar with The Hiding Place, a book written by Corey Tenboom about her experience and her family's experience in Holland, both hiding Jews during the Holocaust, but also then being sent to concentration camp. And she tells the story of years after she was released, years after the war was over, when, she, when her book had become well-known and she was sharing her story in a church that after the service, this man came up to her with great joy, with a big smile, and introduced himself, and, as, and she remembered that he had been one of the Nazi guards at the concentration camp. And she said she just froze because she thought, how can, how can God forgive this man? How can we be one? How can we be joined together? And You need to read the story in her own words because it's a remarkable account of the power of the gospel just as we see here in Philippi where the gospel destroys that barrier even between the oppressed and the oppressors. 
the unique power of the gospel. Only the gospel, among all other religions and philosophies, has this kind of power to truly bring restoration and forgiveness and destroy the barriers between people, uniting them together in the body of Christ. The second uniqueness of the gospel is the way that it spreads. The unique spread of the gospel. God has the power to share his gospel, his truth, in any way that he desires. But often, he chooses to use us. He chooses to use his children, his creation. And this highlights a unique way in which the gospel spreads. Luke writes that Paul and those accompanying him shared the gospel with the women on the banks of the river, right? So Paul preaches a message. But did you catch the phrase that it was God who opened Lydia's heart to receive it? So the spread of the gospel is a partnership into which God enters with his people. He leads us, just as he led Paul, to share the message. And that is our responsibility. As daughters and sons of God, we've, we have hammered this, home, this point home all throughout Acts. We are his witnesses. We are intended to be his witnesses. We are made, we are empowered to be his witnesses. That is our responsibility to share the message, to share the gospel. That's our part of the partnership. But it is God alone, the Holy Spirit alone, who opens the hearts of the people who are hearing the message to receive it and to believe it. As far as I know, there's no other religion that shows this kind of partnership between the divine and creation. In no other religion of which I'm aware does the deity invite his creation to join him in spreading his truth. Remarkable. Uniqueness of the gospel. Thirdly, we find the unique place of praise in the gospel. The unique place of praise in the gospel. The account of Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi is probably one of the most well-known stories of the New Testament. I remember as a kid, it was one I always enjoyed hearing. But the part I always focused on was the earthquake and the doors flying open. That was the, the, the coolest part to me. But perhaps just as important for us to note today is what Paul and Silas do while they're in prison. Now, just to recap, they were, severe, they were stripped and they were severely beaten with rods. Severely beaten. This beating would have been primarily along their back and even their backside and the back of their legs. Severely beaten. Then... They're put in the darkest inner part of the prison, and the text specifically notes that the jailer put their feet in stocks. What were stocks? Probably some of you have some idea of it, but it was uh, two thick boards that could be lifted up, and there were holes in them, so the feet would be placed, and the ankles would be placed in those holes, and then the top board would be dropped on top of it so that the, the person's ankles would be imprisoned there, and then the stocks were locked, and the people would be sitting on the floor with their legs elevated a little bit into the stocks. So if you imagine Paul and Silas 
in intense pain. And not only pain, but the discomfort of having to sit up, sit on the ground with your legs up a little higher. And then, of course, we ask the question, well, why couldn't they just lie down? They've just been severely beaten on their back with rods. So this is a a very unique form of torment. Now, in this situation and in the, the intense, almost palpable darkness of the inner cell in the middle of night and this suffering and pain, what would be the typical human response? I can speak for myself. It would probably be to turn inward and simply try to endure. Just survive. As we all know, Silas and Paul took a different route. They took a different option. In their God-given wisdom, they turned their focus outward toward the Lord in praise. And they sang it. I don't know how good it sounded. I have no idea. But it was impacting enough that it said all the other prisoners were listening to them. They were probably thinking, who are these nuts? Who are these crazy guys who are singing after this torment and punishment and discomfort and this this deep suffering? I want to be clear here to remind us all that God does not need our praise. I think sometimes our thoughts, it's not intentional and it's probably not conscious, But we might slip into this thought pattern wherein we envision God sort of as a little bit desperate. And like God has low self-esteem. And so he he just really needs his people to tell him how great he is. Because because he might forget. So God is just desperate to hear the needs of his, uh, hear his praise from his children. And that is not the case. God does not need anything from us. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our praise. But as the only, all perfect, all holy, all knowing, all just, all wise, all loving, all good, all powerful being, our praise is due only to him. We were all created to worship. We were all created to praise. God made us that way. And what has happened through sin and through the fall, and what the enemy of God continues to tempt us to do, is to worship things that are unworthy of being worshipped. Because we're going to worship. All of us will worship. We are constantly, daily worshipping. The question is, what will we worship? Will we worship that which is worthy or will we worship that which is unworthy? In the Psalms, in Psalm 135, David writes near in verses 17, 18, and 19, he describes the idols of the nations. And he says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Then the next phrase is very telling. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So what's that principle? We become like what we worship. We become like what we praise. So as Paul and Silas sit in the darkness, they intentionally 
turn their thoughts, and it's more than just their thoughts because they're engaging also their voices and their bodies in praise to God. And that is so counter-human. That is so against what we would expect. It is so anti-self. But it is through praise to God that Paul and Silas take the focus off of themselves and place it on the divine where it should be. And we are invited. Actually, we were created to do the same today. And as we praise the Lord, our problems, our pain, our trials are put in perspective. Please hear me, they don't go away. I'm not even suggesting that praise lessens the pain, but it puts the pain in perspective because as we praise, as we worship God, we are becoming more like him. This is something that we see David doing repeatedly in the Psalms, not just David, but the other psalmists as well, praising God in the face of adversity. And and God himself understands that praise can be hard. Because when we're not feeling it, it's one thing when we're feeling these great emotions and we're caught up in the music and we praise, but it's another thing when we're suffering. And that's why the Bible even calls it at times a sacrifice of praise. We make a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. And as Paul and Silas praise the Lord in their suffering, the Lord shakes the foundations of the earth. Now I want to be clear here too, this is not a cause and effect relationship. It's not because... Paul and Silas praised, so they were released. We need to be very careful not to make that a cause and effect because then that puts an unrealistic and an ungodly expectation. Oh, all we have to do is praise and we'll be released. All we have to do is praise and our problems go away. All we have to do is worship and we're going to be okay. We worship and we praise the Lord even in adversity because it's right to do so. Because he is worthy of praise. And we will become like what we worship. And I think all of us in here would desire to become like the Lord. One last thing uh, that I just want to mention here is the fact that they were singing the praises. All of us know how powerful music can be. And I, I think it's one of the greatest gifts, actually, that God has given humanity is music. And I read a commentator this week who said that music has a unique power to help move truth from the intellect to the heart. It's not the only way that that happens, but it is one vehicle that God often uses to do that. And I've I've noticed that for myself, that there might be a, a particular truth of Scripture that I hear in a song, and because it's in a song or a music, it's as though that is something that God uses to help move that from the purely intellectual into the experiential, into the heart. Praise to Almighty God from His people has a unique place in the gospel. Fourthly, I want us to consider the unique gift of the gospel. I've often said that the most important question of life is asked by the Philippian jailer in verse 30 of Acts 16. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The most important question that a human could ever ask. But at the same time, 
It's a flawed question. It's a question that reveals the lack of understanding about the gospel that the jailer himself has. What must I do to be saved? Do you catch the emphasis? What do I have to do? I'm ready to do it. If you recall the account of Naaman in the Old Testament, the Aramean who had leprosy, the the commander of the forces of Aram, and he comes to Israel seeking healing, ends up encountering Elijah, and Elijah tells him to go wash in the Jordan River seven times, and Naaman doesn't want to do it because it's too simple. He says, if I, would have, I would have done anything. I would have performed the most difficult, challenging task, and I'm just told to go bathe in this muddy river. But the answer here for the jailer, the question he's asking is, I can do this. What do I have to do? Just tell me what I have to do and I'll do it. And then the answer given by Paul and Silas is so full of grace and hope and relief because it shows that the gospel is a gift. So yes, it's the most important question that a a human can ask, but the answer is the most important answer to the most important question. Jailer, there's nothing you can do to be saved. There is nothing you can perform or deserve or merit. You will never be able to try hard enough work long enough, or be good enough to be saved. It's not about what you can do for God. It is about what God in Jesus has already done for you. And what's the answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Just a quick note there on the household part. We see this also in Lydia's case where her household all comes to the Lord as well. What Silas and Paul are saying is not that if you believe, then your whole household will be saved. They're saying this truth, this offer of belief, it applies to you and it applies to everyone in your house as well. If they will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved also. In other words, this isn't an exclusive offering just for you. It's for anyone and anyone within your family specifically. As a young child, I was afraid of the water. I, didn't, I, I liked the idea of swimming, and I liked the idea of going to the beach, but the water itself actually terrified me. So as long as I was only up in the water up to my ankles, I was fine. But as my older brother or sister would try to start leading me in the deeper water, I would get terrified. And I remember them trying over and over and over again to just get me to float on my back. And they would tell me, if you just lie still here, and we'll be right here with you. We'll be right here. We won't let you sink either. But if you just lie here still, and they didn't use this language, but trust physics, trust science, trust the displacement of water, trust the laws of flotation, you will float with no effort. I couldn't do it. It's not that I couldn't float. It's that I didn't believe them. I wanted to believe them, but I would would lie there and just for a second, and then I would feel terror. I'm going to sink, I'm going to sink. So then I start thrashing my arms and legs, and then I do start to sink. They did always save me. They were good siblings. But there's there's an image in that, a picture in that about salvation 
which is we desperately want, because we're humans, we def- desperately want to save ourselves. We want to do something impressive. We want to earn it. We want to deserve it. We want to conquer it. And God said, there's no way you can. The more you thrash, the more you try to deserve it, the harder you work to earn it, the more you'll sink. Although most of us know that salvation is dependent upon what Jesus has already done on the cross, we can often fall back into dependence upon our own performance and effort. That's a consistent temptation that many of us face. But the gospel is a gift. And as a gift, it can only be received. So think about that. When a gift is offered, the fact that it is a gift means it cannot be paid for, it cannot be purchased, it cannot be earned. The only thing that can happen with a gift is it can be received or it can be rejected. But it can't be earned. As such, the gospel is a gift, and it can only be received or rejected. Romans 6.23, a very well-known verse that Paul writes to the church in Rome. For the wages of sin is death, but the, we can say it together, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God. Jailer, you can't earn it. There's nothing you have to do. You just have to receive. What must you do to receive eternal life, to be saved? Nothing. You must believe that Jesus has already done it. Unlike every other religion or any other philosophy of life, the gospel is uniquely offered as a gift. A gift in which God has already paid the price instead of requiring that his creation pay the price. And finally, lastly and finally, the unique joy of the gospel. The unique joy of the gospel. Luke tells us a lot about the gospel through this jailer, even though this entire story covers only a few verses, or at least the part that involves the jailer. He and his entire household were filled with joy because they had come to believe in God. That's what Luke writes. They were filled with joy. This is so often the case with new believers. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to either be present as someone makes that choice to believe in Jesus, or maybe some of you have had the opportunity to actually lead someone through that process. And so often when that decision is first made, when belief is first chosen, There is so much joy. I've told you this story before, but there was a young man that rang the doorbell here at the church, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. He was from Italy, and uh, he had quite a story. He was quite the global traveler. He had a lot of money, or at least appeared to, from the stories he told and from the way he was dressed and looked, and he was just depressed, and he had randomly was walking by or driving by, I don't remember which, saw the church, rang the doorbell. I ended up spending about three hours with him that afternoon. I was able to share the gospel from beginning to end, and he listened to every word very intently. 
and he made the decision to believe in Jesus at, near the end of our conversation. And um, I remember the joy in him. It really was a transformation. He prayed and told Jesus that he was choosing to believe in him and accept Christ's sacrifice for him on the cross. We were sitting right out there in the front before we had the big gates. Um, we were sitting on the, the ledge, and he prayed. And I remember his first thing, the first thing he said after he prayed. And it was so joyful. It was also wrong. Well, actually, it was true, but I'll tell you what it was. He just said, he, he finished praying. You know, it was kind of a, he didn't have all the smooth vocabulary that, that experienced prayers have. He was just honest. And talk to Jesus as though Jesus were right there because he was. And then he turned to me and his, he was just grinning and his eyes were wide and bright. And he said, from now on, I'm only going to have the women that God wants me to have. <laughs> and um, <laughs> for me in that moment, what most impressed me was the joy. So much joy and even joy and surrender. And, you know, I, I, I just thought, you know, I told him, I said, that's exactly right. You follow that and have only the women that God wants you to have and you will, be, you will live in purity. <laughs> um, but the, the joy and even it just that it, it, it came out of him in an expression of surrender and of submission to, to Jesus. The gospel is uniquely joy-filled. And if you consider what you know of other religions or other philosophies, I don't find joy in them. What I find is burden and fear and worry and uncertainty. But the other side of that coin, sisters and brothers, is that we as believers and disciples in Christ can forget the joy of the gospel. We can lose the joy of the gospel. It's not that the gospel ceases to be joyful. It's that we forget about it. So we become burdened with everyday life. And if, if we're honest with ourselves, don't we sometimes become burdened by our faith itself? Or by what we perceive to be the, the, the burdens put on us by our faith? And the awesome gift of the gospel becomes blurry because we turn our attention to ourselves and away from what God has done. And this ties back in with the discipline of praise. The discipline of praise to the Lord helps restore the balance of joy because it reminds us of all that God has done and all that He is rather than everything that we think we have to do. And this is what David does in Psalm 103 when he writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul. So praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Don't forget everything that God has done and everything that he is. And then after that, David does exactly what he says he's going to do, and he lists all the benefits that God has given him who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles, and he goes on and on. One thing that I have, a discipline that I've added into my morning quiet time a few months ago is that the first thing I do is take time to praise the Lord, only praise. 
So I try not even I try not to even let thankfulness come in. Not that that's wrong, but not just primarily even to thank God for stuff that I have, but just to write down, I usually journal it, things about who God is. And if we read the Psalms, you're going to see how creative the psalmists are in describing who God is, what his fingers do. And you can just, anyway, and, and it causes, it helps to restore the joy of the salvation that we've been given, the joy of the gospel. In fact, that's one other thing that David asks for in the Psalms, doesn't he? Create in me a clean heart and restore to me the joy of your salvation. Today, I want us to remember the joy of Christ, the joy of the gospel. We were dead in our sin. Dead, but God made us alive with Christ. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We are no longer subject to condemnation, but we have passed from death to life. Jesus took our sorrows and our iniquity on his shoulders on the cross. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. But we so often think and live as though his yoke is hard and his burden is heavy. So this morning, may we be reminded of the deep joy of the gospel. Now, to, to bring this to a close, as I've done before, I want to address two groups this morning. The first group is those of you who may be here or may be following along on our live stream who have not yet made the choice to believe. In other words, the gift of salvation has been offered to you, but you have not yet chosen to accept it through belief in Jesus. And maybe like the jailer, you're still asking, what must I do to be saved? And I want you to know that for you this morning, God is answering that question. For you, he's saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe that Jesus died in your place, paying the price for your sin. And that today, he's offering you his life so that you can be saved. Believe it, receive it, and be welcomed into the family of God. Now, this, the second group are those of you, those of us, who have already made the choice to receive, to accept the gift of salvation that God has offered. And all I would like to ask you to do, invite you to do this morning, is consider anew the uniqueness of the gospel. This incredibly unique gift that is supremely valuable. It's rare among all other religions, and it's gifted with joy. Let us return to our first love. Let us embrace again the joy of our salvation. If it's truly as valuable as Scripture says it is, then let's recognize that value. Let's celebrate it again. And let's ask the Lord, if we need to, to ask the Lord to restore to us the joy of his salvation and to grant us a living spirit to sustain us, his living spirit.